Hi, everyone. The WGA, a.k.a. the Writers Guild of America, is on strike in California and New York over working conditions, pay disputes, and lack of communication, among many other issues, from the major studios where they work. Writers are some of the most important aspects of creating the art that you all love. And without them, actors wouldn't know what to say, animators can't bring their words to life, and you wouldn't have some of the most iconic pieces of dialogue in media history. Now, as we talk about this, the Directors Guild of America has made a deal with the studios, but the writers and everyone else, including the Actors Guild, are going on strike. And if you would like to help them in a financial way, please go to entertainmentcommunityfund.org. And when you make a donation, make sure it's set to TV and telev- uh, movies and television. This is not a strike fund. It's for the people who could use the financial assistance during this strike. We at Renegade Pop Culture stand with the writers and the multitude of guilds and groups that are standing behind the writers for better pay and working conditions. With all that said, if you like what we do, please give us a like, a follow, and a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. We are everywhere. And consider supporting our Patreon. That way we can keep doing what we love, and that's talking about animation. And now, on with the show. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Renegade Animation on the Renegade Pop Culture Podcast Network. My name is Mike. I'll be your host this evening. Joining me, as always, is the animation guru himself, Cameron. Howdy, howdy. And today, we truly have something for everyone. We've got the Apple TV Plus series, Frog and Toad. We've got HBO Max, or Max, original, Fired on Mars. And, of course, we have to talk about Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. So, we'll begin with probably the most child-friendly of the bunch. So, Cameron, why don't you describe Frog and Toad? So, Frog and Toad, the newest Apple Plus TV series for kids, is based off of the children's books that were written and illustrated by Arnold Lobel about a frog and a toad who are best friends and go on adventures and spend the days together as friends. And, well, that's basically what the show is. It's an adaptation of these books. It's not the first one, though. There were some 18-minute and 30-minute adaptations to the first two books by Churchill Films in the 1980s using stop motion. That's pretty cool. The designs perfectly fit for stop motion animation. We basically see them go about their days, hanging with friends, doing very low-key, small-scale plots of like either finding a lost button, picking out an ice cream flavor, just enjoying the day, overcoming their fears, baking a cake, and you get the idea. It's only eight episodes as of right now, and there's just not too much to say about it, and that's not a bad thing. It's probably the most straightforward animated show we will be talking about today. There's no overarching storyline, no flashy or interesting plot twists. It's just an extremely chill show. That's pretty much the extent of what I have to say. This show reminds me a lot of shows that I watched growing up, like The Busy World of Richard Scarry, Franklin, Bernstein Bears, just those nice sort of like easy to consume 
like low-key, laid-back shows that are just like the perfect thing to teach children important lessons about friendship and all that good stuff. Just kind of cool how the show is just the most charming thing you can see on Apple Plus. And Apple Plus has been killing it with their animated TV series that they have. They have quite a few, and we haven't really been able to talk about them just because time gets in the way of everything, as usual. But you also have some really good and, once again, charming performances. You have Nat Faison as Frog, Kevin Michael Richardson as Toad, Tom Kinney steals every scene as Mink. And then you also have like Rob Hoagie, Ron Funches, Betsy Sodaro, John Hodgman, Margaret Cho, Yvette Nicole Brown, Fortune Finmeister, Stephen Topolowski, and Selena Luna to round out the cast with others, including Cole Escola and Aparna Nancherla. The complexity and charm of the show comes through the simple storytelling. And once again, simple doesn't mean bad. It just means that you have to execute it in a way that makes up for the fact that it's very straightforward. And if you are wondering, because of the author Arnold Lobel and the history of how the Frog and Toad books were him able to help come out and such because he was gay. And they do keep that vibe, subtext, to their relationship and such. The subtext is definitely there. Some episodes are a little bit more, I don't want to say explicit, but the more you know about the author, the more certain episodes make more sense. Like the one where Frog gets sick and wants Toad to tell him a story. While I wouldn't call this a comedy series, I would say it is very funny. It's very funny in a laid-back way, like within the situation and the dialogue. But there are moments where I would chuckle and just kind of have a smile on my face watching Frog and Toad go about their day. I still think my favorite little adaptation of one of the books, when... Frog and Toad learn to overcome their fears. It's when they run into the snake, who's also voiced by Kevin Michael Richardson. And the snake was just like, oh, I guess lunch for one then today. Just a very cute misunderstanding. And yeah, just watch it. It's such a sweet and cute show. It's there to have a very relaxing cup of tea. It doesn't feel like it talks down to its audience. Not at all. In fact, after this weekend, with all the times that I've seen across the Spider-Verse, this did kind of help ground me a little bit. And that's just nice when children's entertainment art shows aimed at children don't feel like they're talking down to its audience because children can be a lot smarter than we give them credit for. And we just have to make sure that the writers and the teams are given time to make sure that the dialogue isn't just like so beat you over the head direct with the children. The dialogue in this show just tells a story, has some fun interaction with all the different characters, and it gets the job done. But now we need to talk about the surprise adult animated series on Max. 
I wish it was still called HBO Max, but we can't control that. The questionable judgments made by higher-ups in the studio system. Where we are talking about Fired on Mars by Nate Sherman and Nick Bokey, which is based off of a short of the same name by the duo. We follow Jeff Cooper, a graphic designer living and working on Mars for the startup technology company Marsley. Jeff is voiced by Luke Wilson. And one day as he's, you know, living the life as a graphic designer, living on Mars, not just metaphorically, but very literally on Mars, he gets a call from his bosses, from Darren and Brandon, who are voiced by Tim Heidecker and Sean Wing. Just like how a lot of execs don't understand art, they don't understand why they have a graphic designer on this colony. So they fire Jeff, and Jeff starts to have a very understandable and relatable, I wouldn't call it a midlife crisis, but he has a question of his destiny and we go through eight episodes of him finding what he wants to do with his life what he wants to do with his extremely long distant relationship with his girlfriend that isn't really working out and learning about the politics and the world of this colony that is run by marsley and i remember we were extremely worried about this show because they released a trailer about a week out. We got our first trailer for the show three days before its release. Was a very, not bad decision, but a very questionable one. Since the last time we dealt with this with a HBO Max slash Max original animated series, it was with the poorly faded The Prince But unlike The Prince, which was dead on arrival, Fired on Mars got a weekly release of two episodes a week. It was shockingly good. Like, I was not ready for Fired on Mars to be one of my favorite shows of 2023 because we don't have that many good adult animated shows right now. Because there's like Mulligan, which is fine. And then Agent Elvis, which is just fine. But here we are with an adult animated series that's not edgy. That's not shocking for the sake of shock. It's not ultra-violent. It can get a little bloody and violent, but it's not like Invincible or Vox Machina. It's a show that's all about... The characters, the writing, the world building of the colony, and the atmosphere of said colony, and the headspace that our main character is in. This show is, I'm maybe a little bit biased. It's, I don't think it's quite as good as Pantheon. That show is still kind of one of my favorite examples of how adult animation can be more than just raunchy comedies or ultra-violent action slashems, but this show was still really good. It starts off sort of like a high-concept workplace sitcom, but then kind of morphs into more as 
we get more like commentary on like the internal politics of pretty much every major corporation. There's like a rebellion that's trying to do something more for Mars than just this sort of plastic corporate version. There's so much that kind of surprised me about this. I also like how Jeff is not exactly... He's a very well-rounded character in that he's not entirely likable, but he's also not like... He's not an asshole either. He's he's just a regular guy who is in a bad situation. Exactly. And, well, anyone who has been on a chopping block for, like, at your job knows how much just the dread that you get for, like, oh, no, what do my bosses want to talk to me? What's going on? What's happening? And this show amplifies it, like, tenfold because it's not like Jeff can just be like, well... I'm just going to go do another graphic design job. We are like, I can just move and such. What happens when you were brought to the colony with a purpose and then your purpose was taken away? That's literally 10 times worse than just like losing a job because this guy can't go anywhere. So the show explores that. Like, what does he want to do? And as much as he wants to try to keep his connections to Earth like going and stable, the show acknowledges that it really isn't healthy for Jeff to do what he's doing half the time. He goes around through like different groups in the workplace to try to find his place within said group. I love the casting for our two bosses with Darren being voiced by Tim Heidecker and... Uh, Brandon, being voiced by Sean Wing, they are some of the smarmiest guys there. You have Darren, who is basically the the mouthpiece to Brandon. And Brandon acts like he cares about the outcome of the life of Jeff, but he really doesn't. He talks to every person in that with the exception of the executives and the shareholders and investors, like with a artificial distance with everyone. He's like, hey, I like the cut of your jib, but I don't know why we need a graphic designer. We're not going to fire you. We're just going to relocate you, which he uses all of the flowery, passive wording of a boss that could care less about you oh yeah he was so passive aggressive in pretty much every appearance until the second half of the show when you actually start to see his true colors shine what does help with this eight episode run is how jeff interacts with the people on mars He's at first very desperate to feel wanted, to be part of a group. And then at two different points where he encounters a group of people who are changing Mars for the better for to make a colony that's not reliant on Marsley. Then Marsley's like, hey, buddy, you know that graphic designer job like we took from you with our cold corporate hands? How about a new graphic designer job? And you see Jeff pulled between the two worlds of wanting to be part of a group 
but two different groups that have two different like ambitions and plans and goals in mind and such. The character chemistry works so well here. I think Jeff and Jackson, who's voiced by Cedric Yarborough, are so good together. I love Cedric's performance as a, a character. And everyone else is pretty good here. It has a vibe of King of the Hill in some regards of how human these characters are. Mm-hmm. It comes off like that also in a lot of ways, especially down to the art style that really made me think like, this is just a sci-fi King of the Hill episode. Pamela Adlon is in the cast too. Yeah, the voice of Bobby Hill. And the rest of the cast is also very good. We have Frankie Quinones, Leslie David Baker, Amara Karen. Let's see, Stephen Root also makes an appearance. Emily Watson, Thomas Hayden Church, David Fostino, Dasha Nekrasova, Adewal Akinu, Dan Soder, and Don Lewis, to name a few. I was just hooked because... I'm not the most receptive person to shows that want to be about philosophical quandaries and extremely dense dialogue-driven shows. That's why I didn't really connect with that anime from, I think, two years ago, Sunny Boy, where the dialogue was so dense. There was so much going on with the philosophy and morality behind all of the like every sentence and it was mixed with that cool surreal wonderfully animated world that they brought to life but i felt a disconnect as a viewer because i was just like i don't get what they're saying at times fired on mars is very straightforward with how it wants you to view the world the mars lake colony and how People are treated between two different groups, the Buckies and the people that take and enjoy in very hedonistic lifestyles while everyone else is working. The writing is so good and a theme so human and universal. I was hooked from episode one to eight. I almost binged the show in one day. I only had to split it up because of time, but... This show gets you pretty much right away. And I think Luke Wilson is almost perfectly cast as Jeff Cooper. Speaking of Mike Judge, he does kind of remind me a little bit of a mix between Wilson's character in Idiocracy. And also, I think his name is Milton from Office Space. The guy who apparently was fired months ago, but they still keep him around the office. That is so messed up, man. I can't believe they did that. I forgot about Office Space. I haven't seen it in forever. Going back to that point, you can tell that Mike Judge was a big sort of creative influence on the series. And I think that's just part of the show's charm. Yeah, it's not trying to be like another family guy. Like I'm watching another adult animated series right now on Max called Royal Crackers. And while I do find it funny, I do think it's still trying too much to to set itself up a traditional adult raunchy comedy where Fired on Mars is closer akin to King of the Hill or shows like Mission Hill or Baby Blues, which is funny because the studio that animated it, Rough Draft Studios, worked on shows like The Max, 
Futurama, and Baby Blues, along with other things like Korgoth of Barbaria. Like, the designs don't have that typical family guy wannabe look. They look like people. And just without a lot of the intense details that comes with, you know, wrinkles and lines. I like that Jeff and his journey, like, and encountering the Buckies and dealing with the corporate overlords, he doesn't always get what he wants. He's a human character who doesn't just get whatever because the plot demands it or wish fulfillment. He goes through his ups and downs, and that's what makes him a really relatable individual. Even when he thinks he gets what he wants, like getting that creative director job, it still feels hollow in some ways. Pretty much all of his relationships, while at one point they were genuine, there's something one step missing for him to like fully commit. I would consider this a sci-fi dramedy more than just like a straight up comedy. Not to say that it isn't funny. There are some really funny jokes. Probably the first time I've seen a joke that references a spam ad that's on like less protected sites of just like, are you 50 years old? You better not be because you can't handle this video game. And to see Tim Heidecker's Darren almost tempted to click the ad and then Jeff comes in and Darren is just like, Jeff, I am doing a, like some very important business right now. Tim Heidecker is so, I was one of those people who did not get him at first, but then I listened to a few of his comedy routines and like, he's that perfect guy to be either like the most white guy when you see him in Jordan Peele's Us or the most smarmy corporate head you can think of like in this show. And a lot of the jokes come through the dialogue and the visual gags. And once again, just very King of the Hill style execution of said jokes. Like when the young man who who's the son of the CEO comes to Mars and such, and he's just like, just dunks on Jeff's work for the Mars anniversary. Like everyone was on board and then this guy comes in with all the nepotism that you can ask for with being the son of the CEO. And then he says like, yeah, I don't like it. It's garbage. It's vintage. Nobody wants vintage crap. Then everyone is just like, yeah, I kind of agree with him. And it's just like, no, you didn't. You are all <laughs> corporate bootlickers. Then the son goes like, you know what? We need propaganda. And then Jeff constantly questions him like, you just said you didn't want vintage or like propaganda. But of course, everyone wants to be nice to the son of the CEO, even though the son is not that great of a person. Oh, no. He is pretty much every single stereotype of corporate Nepo babies. But the show does, on top of like criticize workplaces, mega corporations, and the intentions and goals of people. It has moments that are just lovely and beautiful, like when Nate goes out onto the surface of Mars with the Buckies to find a new place to build a new colony. And 
I won't spoil what happens to one of the characters, but it's very touching what happens. Well, it's tragic, but touching as he is given another turn on the ignition of the engine of his spirit to really get the job done because of it. I don't know if we're going to get a second season of this. It kind of ends on a pseudo open. There's enough there to maybe put in a second season, but I don't think there's quite enough for there to actually be a substantial one. And this is already like eight episodes. I would like to see more based on where the season ends off. But at the same time, if this is like just a one-off, I'm also okay with that too, because by the end of the series, like it does end on a somewhat satisfying note. It does. I'm not going to spoil it what happens, but it ends on like note of something bad happens to the corporate heads, but not everyone gets a happy ending, but some do and some start a new life. And it's just interesting to see how this show came out during the writer's strike because of how terrible the bosses are with how they treat Jeff because they're just like, we don't understand art. And then about halfway through the show's run, the buildup to the Mars anniversary, they were going to hire another graphic designer. If that doesn't represent the ignorance of the executives that run game studios, animation studios, film studios, studios of any kind that don't understand art, then I don't know what to tell you because there are so many stories where it's like, we had to lay off a bunch of animators because we can't get rid of the higher ups who are at fault here, but we also have to hire back some more animators. So it's just fun to see an adult animated series come out and not only wow you, but be such a substantial experience. Not that every show needs to be like this, but I want adult animated series to be the best of what they set out to be. Agreed. If you want to see more variety in adult animation, you have to give shows like this a chance because that sends the clearest message to studios that there is more that the medium has to offer. Exactly. And right now we are in basically a swarm of amazing art that's going to be released during this one month of June. And as we are recording this, what is quite possibly the most important piece of art and animation came out with... Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. I know it sounds corny to say like, oh, a comic book movie is going to be one of the most important pieces of art this year. I get that, especially with the quote-unquote superhero fatigue, which is just audiences are getting tired of the same old, same old, and want some reinvigorated passion in their entertainment. But I don't think I was quite as ready to be floored as hard as I was with Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. I don't think anyone was ready. (laughs) Nope. Nope. Nobody was ready. 
Even if you thought you were ready, you weren't. <laughs> Absolutely not. It's like that moment in the movie where you see the therapist Spider-Man talking to another Spider-Man. And it's like, and I held him in my arms and like, oh, let me guess, he died. And then that whole barrage of Spider-Man, women, animals and such coming through. through. That's what you think you're ready for. But then that horde of spider people, it's like 20 times bigger than that. It quite possibly surprised everyone in a way that I don't think many will feel again this year. I'm hoping for more stuff like this because this is what makes watching movies and stuff fun. Oh, but agreed. The contact high I have had watching this movie twice. I had a hard time putting my thoughts and words into a review because all I could get out were joyful yelling and just amazement of just having my jaw drop to the floor and then obliterated with watching this movie and what unfolds. But we should actually talk about the movie first. So this picks up, say, like 18 months or so. Like a year and four months. Yes, since the first movie. And we have two parallel storylines. We start with Gwen, who is dealing with the disconnect between her cop father and him thinking that Spider-Woman or Spider Gwen in this case, is the enemy until she zooms off and encounters a classic Spider-Man villain, the Vulture. But not just her universe is the Vulture, because depending on what comic book storyline, what adaptation, what show and such, the Vulture can either be like, ah, really? (laughs) This villain? To one of the biggest threats Spider-Man will ever face and encounters a version of the Vulture from a Renaissance Da Vinci 2D sketch universe, which I was so amazed by the Vulture's design. Oh my gosh. That thing looked incredible. Do all these cool little details. Like when he loses his wing, he just sketches up from rough draft to outlines to the whole wing again he looks so cool and they do that thing that the first film made well pretty much started the trend of moving characters at different frame rates but his design which was very busy just with all this the drawings and lines and such you could tell who he was in his character and such if you want to know what you're getting into this first 15 minutes like opening bit before the title card comes up is a good example because even before we get to the the vulture fight this world of watercolors was jaw dropping like my eyes couldn't have gone wider to see the beautiful use of colors in this movie i say this in my review you could mute the movie and still understand the tone and the mood of the Mm -hmm. characters on screen with 
Gwen and her disconnect with her dad and how the colors portray the mood. And they do those little cool sequences of Gwen sneaking back into her room, but the window reflection shows Spider-Gwen, but Gwen does not have the Spider-Woman uniform on. I'm sorry, like, I had to gush a little bit about the animation because, golly, we're going to gush about it throughout the whole discussion piece here. So anyway... Gwen encounters this different universe's the Vulture and then gets help from Spider-Man 2099, Miguel O'Hara, voiced by Oscar Isaac, and Spider-Woman, voiced by Issa Rae, and learns about this organization of spider people who are there to make sure the continuity of the worlds are kept intact so we don't have stuff like a renaissance vulture or a <laughs> probably one of my favorite small jokes in the movie an uninteresting rhino that's just a rhinoceros <laughs> <laughs> showing up in another universe that doesn't make sense as the fight unfolds gwyn decides to join up with Spider-Woman and Spider-Man 2099. But we also then start to follow Miles Morales, voiced once again by Shameik Moore, who is struggling to deal not only with his responsibilities as Spider-Man, but also the class life and his connection with his family as the parents are talking to a college guidance counselor about the opportunities with for Miles Morales, while also dealing with what is possibly my new favorite Marvel villain, the Spot, voiced by Jason Schwartzman. Like, at first you think, well, this is like a C-grade villain. This is the one that you use to make fun of because of how silly and absurd a lot of the supervillains got back in the day with creating uh, villains for Spider-Man and superheroes to interact. You find out that the spot is very much more of a handful than Miles can take on and ends with a, a very cool conclusion that's also a, that was also very funny. The thing about Miles and Spot's skirmish before he even makes it to the guidance counselor's office is just priceless. There are a lot of jokes that I loved in this movie. And one of the earlier ones of just like how they build up the spot first, where he's very pathetic and doesn't really know what he's doing as a supervillain. It's like the supervillain you don't want to meet for the first time, like as a superhero, because it's kind of sad. Because this guy's like trying to steal an ATM and he's fumbling and messing up all the way through inside the bodega. And it turns out like those spots are very much practical and extremely useful to like get out of situations, divert punches and kicks and whatever. And then on accident, <laughs> the spot kicks himself into his one of his own holes which I'm sure all the whole jokes in this movie were all intentional in the way they were phrased. They knew what they were doing. <laughs> My holes have a purpose. And it's like, 
okay. <laughs> but it leads to a conflict of interest between Miles and his parents, where the parents just want to make sure Miles is okay, but Miles is brushing against their well-intentioned words and such because of how he's still finding himself with who he is and what he wants to represent as Spider-Man. Of course, Gwen shows up in Miles' universe and they bond through some really great visuals. Like the cinematography and how shots and scenes are choreographed and executed. Like, man... This is why CGI animation is not even close to done to evolving because it was so cool to see how they were able to pull off all the different dynamic camera angles. This must have been a, I don't want to say torturous, but a very taxing amount of storyboarding to get all of this right. Let's just say there is a reason why it took three directors to put this all together. Exactly. Essentially what what happens throughout this movie is Miles learning about all the other spider people while also having to stop the spot from pretty much causing the end of the universe. The spot went from punchline villain of the week joke to Thanos level threat in like a span of five minutes. And what I love about that is pretty much like his whole rise to villainy is almost stemmed from the fact that he was insulted that he was called the villain of the week. And it's really humorous how they set up the connection between Spot and Spider-Man because you find out that the reason why Jonathan Own is the Spot is because of Miles Morales' actions. Not just a big machine thing from the first movie, zapping him and giving him these powers of these holes. And that's not a costume, by the way. That's his skin, which, that sucked. Because it not only leaves you as this humanoid monstrosity, the holes lead to a lot of unintentional comedy at the expense of the spots. I mean, you see this part in all the trailers and marketing where the bread is falling out of his stomach area. And like, there's a lot of jokes like that. But I also love the little detail of when he's in his little pocket dimension area. His whole body is just blank. But you can actually see, because this movie has a, a billion details in its animation, he's a blank canvas, metaphorically and literally. You can see like the little drawing outlines. Mm -hmm. And I mean, in a lot of ways, that kind of fits in with a lot of this movie of just like starting from scratch and their actions building up who they are as like an individual, like a Spider-Man, Spider-Woman, what have you. Because there's just like so many little details about this movie and how it tells its story of when Miles and Gwen find out that like, oh, now the spot is going to cause some cataclysmic events within Miles' own universe, but also just the universes of every Spider-Man. And this is what I love about this movie. They start sprinkling in a lot of the little details that we won't spoil of what's to come for 
this part one of the movie. And I guess let's just get this elephant out of the room. A lot of the marketing hides the fact that this is part one of two. And I get it. They didn't want to do like Across the Spider-Verse part one because of, I assume, marketing reasons. And they don't want audiences to feel like, oh, you missed something. So you got to watch something else before you watch this movie when they just want you to come see the movie right then and there. And a lot of people I've seen with their reviews say this movie has a very anticlimactic. I emphatically disagree with that. I disagree with it too. Not, not to steamroll any criticism of it with you'll see it in a sequel. A lot of this movie is a very long act one and a very long act two with like a tiny smidgen of an act three of what I assume are six in total between the two movies. And every generation has this version of, oh my gosh, this ends on a cliffhanger. The biggest example I had was Back to the Future Part 2, which literally ends with a trailer for Part 3. For those who either haven't seen it or haven't seen it in a while, the slight spoiler I have is that Back to the Future Part 2 ends with Doc Brown pretty much eating off to the year 1885. Now, that's probably the closest example to a film ending on a very classic cliffhanger. And this one ends in a similar fashion. I would assume every generation has had this kind of experience. There was The Empire Strikes Back that really doesn't have an ending in a traditional sense because it ends on the big plot twist of between Luke and Vader. And then that's it. And it's kids that were growing up during the early 2000s. Y'all grew up with, and like I grew up with this, the Lord of the Rings movies. Mm -hmm. There's literally the first two movies end on cliffhangers for the next story beats. Because you can tell the first Lord of the Rings doesn't really end with them getting anywhere near Mordor. I mean, I understand people were probably expecting that because Lord of the Rings were booked. And Across the Spider-Verse is its own distinct take on Miles Morales and the Spider-Man property. Like, I don't think it's as whiplash-inducing as many people make it out to be. Oh, no. Because what they do is continuously build up to the twist of the cliffhanger ending for this one, even when you don't really realize it. Just small little details sprinkled throughout. And especially when... We go into the introduction of probably the most, well, two of the most fan favorite characters of this movie with Spider-Man India, voiced by Karan Sony, who might be my favorite character, or at least one of two favorite characters of this movie, who also has some of the best jokes. The Chai and the Non jokes got the biggest laughs out of my theater. And I mean, it's a super funny joke because it, it's like a double negative when you actually think about when people say like, oh, I love chai tea and Spider-Man India almost has like a small meltdown because he's like, 
Chai means tea. So you're just saying tea tea. Do you just go coffee shop and get coffee coffee with your cream cream? And it keeps berating miles over the head. It's like, it's like when you all say non bread, when you just have to say non, non means bread. <laughs> Though I think my favorite joke from Spider-Man India is the traffic joke, the combination of Mumbai and Manhattan that they craft for Spider-Man India's universe, which is so cool because you think it looks like a very flat traditional world until it just expands into this giant infinite city. And it is so cool when that twist of like the take on this universe is. I remember a couple people in my theater were like, whoa, when you realize how densely packed and detailed this world is. And so when Spider-Man India is introducing the world, he says, and this is where the traffic is. This is where the traffic is. There's traffic, more traffic, there's traffic. And this is where the British stole all of our stuff. (laughs) It's just the punchline comes out of nowhere because you think it's going to just be traffic, traffic, traffic. And then it ends with bashing colonialism. We are also in this chase between Spider-Man India, Spider-Woman, and Spider-Man with the spot are introduced to metaphorically and literally the coolest character in the movie. Spider-Punk, a.k.a. Hobie Brown, the Spider-Punk, voiced by Daniel Kaluuya. And I thought I was done being amazed by the animation. And then this punk rock Spider-Man shows up. And then I was just like, oh my God, my head was going to explode with the realization that they were not done yet flexing the muscle of the art styles that this movie is going to throw at you. This is my favorite character. And one of the reasons why, aside from the fact that he is just like one of the coolest characters to be introduced in really any movie so far this year, the way he's animated is... It's chaotic. I don't remember where I read this, but every single piece of like his outfit is animated at like a different frame rate. So you have like you have his clothes, the guitar that he carries, the mohawk. It's all going at like different frame rates and I don't know how they pulled that off. I would love a breakdown on the Blu-ray or whatever of how they animate some of these characters because some of them are just a cool visual style. Or like a distinction, like like Penny Parker, the anime Spider-Woman, is animated very much like anime. Or like Spider-Man India has this cool, distinct, vibrant look to his design. I love the little details of the tusks on the side of the masks for Spider-Man India. But Spider-Punk is just bleeding, oozing out of every fiber of its existence, late 80s, early 90s punk rock motifs. And how he just looks like a someone cut him out of a magazine every time he moves. Exactly. But the real meat of the story comes after this whole sequence in India where Miles ends up preventing a canon event, which Miguel O'Hara describes as like, the story beat that happens with every spider person because that's the thing that drives them to be 
and what makes them Spider-Man. Miguel thinks Miles is a anomaly, a mistake, an accident. Because throughout the movie, they keep, for some reason, referencing the fact that Morales's spider, the one that bit him, was from a different dimension. Dimension 42. And because Miguel thinks if you weren't bit by that spider that was meant for someone else, your Spider-Man wouldn't have died. And it comes back to the story of Miles having to deal with the fact that he literally, not figuratively, literally cannot save everyone. I was wondering where they were going with this because that's kind of the story of the first film. Because if he was able to save everyone, the Chris Pine Spider-Man wouldn't have died. His uncle wouldn't have died. And here, it's like he feels that guilt that he was not able to save everyone. And that's what's driving Miles. Kind of like how Miguel is driven by his trauma of how he wanted to be in a universe where his family was alive. So he went to a universe where another version of him died. It just caused that whole universe to implode. This movie tackles character motivation in a surprisingly and dark, morally gray way. And that's what I love about this story. It's not just good or evil, or in the case of some of the films, very lightweight, morally gray situations. Here, they commit to the bit because the writers and the teams making this movie were able to commit to the bit. It's the trolley problem, but wrapped up in everything that makes Spider-Man, Spider-Man. And I also mean that literally because once we get to the secret society, you pretty much see at least like 95% of all the various Spider-Man incarnations. They also include a lot of the variations of the villains, which I wish I didn't have this one cameo ruined for me because some knucklehead posted it on a Facebook page. But the biggest laughs I heard from the people on my second screening, when you see Donald Glover as Prowler, which is like extremely funny because it's like, oh, hey, they acknowledge that the Sony Tom Holland Spider-Man movies have basically dropped the ball in terms of the opportunity they had to have Donald Glover as the Prowler. Like this movie uses Donald Glover better than Tom Holland's Spider-Man Homecoming. And I just think that is such a very interesting joke, gag, but also self-deprecating jab at Sony's own issues of having to run this recent Spider-Man trilogy or live action Spider-Man trilogy. It's also a little bit of foreshadowing too. Oh, exactly. And a lot of the conflict again, boils down to Miguel who could have easily been painted as a villain, but I don't think he's a villain. He's just very aggressive with how he wants to handle making sure everyone is okay. No jokes, no slip-ups, 
no messing with the continuity. And Miles, it's just like, no, screw you. I'm pushing back against fate and predestined events so I can save people. But just because he can save this one person doesn't mean that that person's not going to die another way or something else will replace that incident. It then leads to possibly one of the funniest, most thrilling, and most, I hope the animators get a friggin' pay raise, residuals, and royalties for this sequence. The chase sequence. Oh my gosh. Where people just like, so invested with the chase sequence and hoping Miles makes it out. This chase sequence is the reason why I had to go back and see this movie multiple times because they pull off some insane action choreography, animation. There are like hundreds of different spider people with various different art styles and that they somehow find a way to make it cohesive, to make the action like actually visibly visibly intelligible while still being chaotic in its presentation is one of the most impressive things I've seen. Most of the spider people have distinct art styles and how they move. I can't imagine how long it took to do this one chase sequence with all the different movements and art styles, making sure that none of them clash with one another, while also fitting in some amazing jokes. Like, I love the whole sequence of, at the beginning, where Miguel is like, okay, everyone, we got, we're in major trouble. We got to stop Spider-Man. And then they all start pointing at one another because they're just, like, so confused. Because it's like, yo, we're all Spider-Man here. You got to be a little more specific. Then how all of them try to stop him. Like, I love the Spider-Man on the horse, like the cowboy one. And... Then the introduction of the very original, stiffly animated animated Spider-Man, who's just like, anything you can do, I can do. Oh, no. And you just see him slide across the screen because he can't move. They were able to actually like fit in the other 2D animated Spider-Mans and the video game Spider-Man as well into these sequences and... It's just so impressive. And this is a year where we've had some incredible chase sequences from John Wick 4 to Dungeons and Dragons. This had some literal blood, sweat, and tears put into this whole sequence. And it leads to one of my favorite jokes of the movie where one of them's like, you got nowhere else to run, Spider-Man. Miles just jumps out the window. And then the guy's like, oh, wait. Yeah, my bad, people. Another way for him to go. That random Spider-Man is actually voiced by Metro Boomin. He's the guy who put together the soundtrack. So killer. Like, such a fun voice cast also. I mean, we have our mainstays, Shameik Moore, Haley Steinfeld. Jake Johnson shows up as Peter B. Parker again. Issa Rae is great. I wish Spider-Woman slash Jessica Drew was in the movie a little more. Because they do build up the dynamic between her and Gwen. Who knows? We'll probably see more of her in the next movie. Karan Sony is Spider-Man India is good. The Scarlet Spider jokes 
were so perfect. And again, as much as I want voice actors to get roles in these big types of movies, Andy Samberg knew exactly what to do with the character because Mm -hmm. of how so many people reacted to that edgy, broody, 90s superhero. Like, he's not even in the movie a whole lot, but Andy Samberg, man, he is so funny as the Scarlet Spider. And Jason Schwartzman does a good job, like a shockingly good job of going from pathetic wannabe supervillain to the most threatening individual in the room. Then we also have the return of Brian Tyree Henry and Luna Loren Velez as Rio and Jefferson Morales. Then we have George Stacy, who's voiced by Shay Wigham. And uh, Shay and Bailey Steinfeld. Man, their interactions were so good. Just so heartfelt and emotionally pointed. Mm-hmm. That you could just feel the dread, the drama in the core of your chest with their interactions. The second and third time that I went to see this, their last scene together was very heartbreaking. But we also have some other new faces, like Amanda Stenberg, who plays Spider-Bite. We have the return of Greta Lee, who voices Lila. Jorma Takone voices the Vulture. And even like in small roles, we have like Rachel Dratch, who voices Miss Weber. Lenny, the bodega guy, is voiced by Ziggy Marley. J.K. Simmons reprises his role as J. Jonah Jameson. Peter Stone finally got to play Genki. That was the original intent for Genki was to be voiced by Peter Stone. And, but yet he wasn't able to because they cut out a lot of his scenes. They were even brought back Josh Keaton and Yuri Lowenthal, who has voiced Spider-Man in the past. They got a killer cast. Good combination of character actors and big time actors to make these characters come to life and i don't even want to know if i want to talk about this the ending because it's such a big twist that you have to see how it unfolds in theaters to get the full impact of it if you want a more spoiler filled discussion brock and i over on organoid zero did a full spoiler review of across the spider-verse but here i think it's best to just let you guys experience the movie for yourselves. Especially if you already have it. It's only been like the opening weekend as we record this. And a lot of people want to be going into this movie as blind as possible because you don't want to go in knowing what's going to happen. You want to go in with just knowing as little as possible. And it's so worth it. This movie was amazing. A true Herculean triumph and not only filmmaking and animation, but just as an experience. And it's just part one. I can't imagine what's going to happen with part two. It makes me a little worried for part two because I want this trilogy to make the landing so hard. And I'm sure it will, but it just sucks that we have to wait until March of next year. And who knows if it'll stay in that release date. But, man, what a great movie. I wish all movies could be this exciting to talk about. Same. This is one of those movies there. If Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse was 
lightning captured in a bottle. This is like, to quote someone on Twitter, this is like an entire brewery of lightning in bottles. It's just a wonderful experience. Do see it on the big screen. It's absolutely worth it. And it's probably my favorite animated film and favorite film of the year so far in general. I don't know how it's going to get, like, they're going to top this. And yeah, sure, I could name a few minor criticisms, but those criticisms don't add up to much or detract from the experience. But yeah, just go see it. I know it's already making a nice amount of money because animation is making bank at the box offices here so far. Just go see it. Go see it. Just go in blind as a bat and watch it. If you love the the first movie, you're going to love the second one. I think I might like this one more. But it's so tough because the first one is so refreshing and unique that this was going to be a real no-pressure situation of how are they going to top that? And they did. They somehow found a way to top into the Spider-Verse. It wasn't easy, but I think they definitely did it. And because I want these guys to be more of a household name, I have to shout out the directors, Joaquin DeSantos, Kemp Powers, and Justin K. Thompson. And if I'm not mistaken, each of these are pretty much making their feature film debut. Kemp Powers co-directed Soul back in 2020, but... This is his first time stepping up as as a director and hugely impressive work from everyone involved. It helps that they have a lot of the same people executive producing and writing the movie, which is why it hits the landing. They didn't pull a Shrek where they had different people come in to tell the next like part of the story. It's basically a family occasion. They want the consistency to go from the first two to third movie. And they do. Well, so far they have. So I can't wait to see what's next. Yeah, final thoughts. Go see this movie. And then go see it again. And then again. Just go support good animation and support the animation being released in theaters because they could really use it right now since June is going to be a busy month. And it would be a shame if the other animated films were to crumble because people just kept supporting one movie, but support all animation. But until then, next time, we'll be talking about some new cartoons that they decided to throw at us in June. But we'll talk about them next time. Until next time, Cameron, where can everyone find you online? You can find me on Twitter at Cam's Eye View. I run my own website called camsiview.biz where I review animated films and shows from around the world called The Other Side of Animation. I also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash camsiview. That's where you can find me. And you guys can find me on Twitter at CaptainK42. You can check out my quick thoughts on letterbox.com slash CoachK42. And you can follow Renegade Pop Culture on Facebook and Twitter at RenPopCulture. You can also find us on YouTube, on Podchaser. Subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash renegadepopculture. Listen to all of our podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, basically wherever you listen. And last but not least, everything can be found at renegadepopculture.com. Need an escape? So do we. That'll do it for this episode of Renegade Animation. We will catch you guys later. Peace out.